Hello and welcome to the KBL Weekly Podcast, where we feature highlights from the major land-related news stories in South Africa, which appear on our website, www.knowledgebase.land. I'm Rick Desace, Director of Research at Putlisani and Curator of the website. Today we report on issues making the news in week 46 from Monday the 11th of November to Sunday the 17th of November 2019. In our focus on expropriation, we provide an update on the process of amending the Constitution and feature the debate on the merits of the different amendments which have been formulated. We also reflect back on the origins and impacts of the farm workers' strike launched seven years ago. In our food security section, we review an article by the Daily Maverick Our Burning Planet team which examines the disturbing evidence of climate and ecosystem collapse and the implications for food security in South Africa. Our rural development focus continues to be on the impacts of drought and the need for a much better management of disasters linked to the mounting climate crisis. In our coverage of land redistribution, we feature a story about a livestock and crop farmer from Somerset East in the Eastern Cape who successfully leases land obtained through the proactive land acquisition strategy. In our governance and land administration section, we highlight an upcoming landmark court case in the Peter Marisburg High Court on the 22nd of November, which will challenge the right of the Ingonyama Trust Board to force residents living on land controlled by the Trust to sign lease agreements. This is a crucial case that will establish the rights of 5,2 million South Africans living in former KwaZulu and clarify their rights to their homes, land and security of tenure. In our section on land rights and mining, we focus on the social consequences of insensitively handled grave relocation. And finally, our urban use section takes us to Cape Town and the Eastern Cape. In an unusual twist, a provincial government department has sanctioned the city of Cape Town, requiring it to deliver services to Dunoon informal settlement. More in a moment. First to expropriation, Jan Gerber, writing in News24, provides an update on the process of amending the Constitution. He asks three substantive questions about the process. The answer to the first question, is it too late to object to amending Section 25, is yes. The ad hoc committee is in the process of initiating and introducing legislation to this effect. So next, Heber asks, is expropriation without compensation a done deal? His answer here is almost. The reason why the amendment may not go through is that it needs to be passed by a two-thirds majority in the National Assembly. This will require 267 votes. Currently, those parties who are on record as opposing an amendment have 114 seats. So all eyes will be on the EFF, as the ANC will need 44 EFF votes to carry the amendment. 
The FF could decide not to support the amendment introduced by the ANC if they regard it as being too weak and inadequate. This could leave the ANC in an embarrassing position. Question number three posed by Kerber is whether the nationalisation of land is a possibility once the amendment has been passed, to which the answer is no, as this would demand a rewrite of much of the constitution and existing law. However, Dr. Anthea Jeffrey from the Institute of Race Relations offers a different perspective. She writes a commentary on the amendments being proposed by the ad hoc committee, and in her view, the second option being proposed by the committee, namely the insertion of a new subsection 25.4a, which would read, quote, notwithstanding the requirement for compensation in section 25.2, 3 and 4, land may be expropriated without the payment of any compensation, is a legitimate option for land reform in order to redress the results of past racial discrimination. This, in her view, would take the decision on zero compensation away from the courts and into the hands of what she describes as, quote, ANC's deployed CADA, unquote. To date, however, the most detailed and rigorous interpretation of the constitutionality of the different amendments has been prepared by a team of constitutional lawyers. This was recently presented as a submission to the Ad Hoc Committee and you can find a link to this on our weekly roundup of news at Knowledge Base Land. This week in our segment on farm workers, Barbara Marachele, writing in Ground Up, reflects on the seven years which have passed since farm workers went on strike into Duens in November 2012. Betty Fortain, one of the local leaders of the strike, looks back. She says, quote, We didn't ask for much. We really just wanted the basics, like higher wages, a toilet in the vineyards, clean water, and for all workers to be treated fairly. That is all. Unquote. Fortain locates the origins of the mass action in a successful strike which originated on Kerboschkloof Farm in September 2012. In this case, workers who had been paid between 90 rand and 130 rand per day, already much higher rates of pay than comparative wages on other farms, managed to secure an increase which brought their wages up to 150 rand a day. According to Fortain, once other workers saw the results of this action, they began to mobilise to also obtain 150 rand a day as a minimum wage. The striking workers handed over a list of 21 demands, although the list provided by Grundup only mentions 19. These included a demand for 150 rand per day wage, a moratorium on farm evictions, full maternity benefits for all workers, including seasonal workers, housing contracts to include both partners' names, and workers to work for a 40-hour week. There are a number of other proposals, including an agricultural sector, statutory bargaining council, a ban on labour brokers, and 
general transformation of the agricultural sector. In response to the strike, the Minister of Labour increased the minimum wage from 69 rand per day to 105 rand per day. With the introduction of the national minimum wage, seven years later, the rate for farm workers was set at 18 rand an hour or 162 rand per day and is due to rise to 20 rand an hour by 2020. However, very few of the other demands on the list have been addressed and much of the value of the wage increase has been offset by employers putting a value on services which were previously provided for free. The Labour Relations Act sets 45 hours per week as the maximum, which puts paid to the demand for a 40-hour week. According to a representative of Agriculture South Africa, AgriSA, the Agricultural Sector Provident Fund has been established and activities to promote contributions to the fund are planned for 2020. All in all, however, according to Fortain, workers are getting to the point where, quote, we will definitely see another strike soon, this time with a demand for 250 rand per day. One of the most illuminating articles this week is by Kevin Bloom, writing in the Daily Maverick. Bloom heads up the Our Burning Planet team which examines the evidence of climate and ecosystem collapse and the implications for food security in South Africa. Recently, the team accessed the detailed submissions of 16 South African conglomerates to the Global Carbon Disclosure Project. The article contains a revealing link to a submission by Checkers, South Africa's largest food retailer, which makes for a truly sobering read. The submission provides a window into how this multi-billion rand conglomerate reads the future and anticipates the impacts of the increased frequency of drought-like conditions on the availability of food and the escalation of prices. Bloom argues that the South African government and big business need to pool their resources to urgently come up with a set of adaptation measures that properly acknowledge the seriousness of the threats we face. It is a message we all need to take to heart and push to the top of the policy agenda. The impacts of climate systems collapse on food security, the economy and state investment in land reform need to be properly understood. In our rural development news, Sipelele Tlutla in the IOL Business Report reviews recent warnings issued by AgriSA on the serious impacts of the prevailing drought. AgriSA highlights the potential of the drought to, quote, collapse rural economies and decimate the agricultural industry, close quotes. The head of the AgriSA Disaster Management Centre, Willem Symington, stated that in the Western Cape there had been a loss of 25% in the value of export crops while job losses in the agricultural sector were projected at between 20 and 25% in the Northern Cape and the Free State. Symington observed that 
As a country, we are not managing climate disasters very well. We have a lot of work to do. Drought can change our status as a food-secure country. The article quotes Grain SA Chief Executive Yanni de Villiers, who said that South Africa had only received close to half the rain it required. Quote, We are late, we are worried. We're not in a crisis yet, but have real concerns. We are pleading with the government for an insurance system for these kinds of situations in order to maintain our food security. Close quote. Omri Fonsale, Agri-SA Executive Director, is also reported as making a number of recommendations to government. These include the establishment of a National Drought Management Commission and the establishment of a disaster fund. However, combating climate change will require much more than this and demands a complete overhaul of current farming system and a scaling back of agriculture's contribution to rapid global warming. There's usually a shortage of positive news about land redistribution, particularly in the Eastern Cape, which has been devastated by drought. However, this week, the Herald Live reports on the success of Aviwe Kotiwe in the Eastern Cape, who leases land obtained through the proactive land acquisition strategy. Kotiwe, who studied law at the University of the Free State, is a livestock and crop farmer from Somerset East. He reportedly harvested 36 tonnes of chicory in 2018, and in 2019 he's planted lucerne, which is mainly used for animal feed for his 1,500 sheep. According to Kotiwe, agriculture presents huge opportunities. Many people just do traditional farming, but the possibilities are endless. Turning now to land governance and administration, Kathleen Wooden, an intern at the Legal Resources Centre, provides the background on an upcoming court case in the Peter Maritzburg High Court on the 22nd of November. This challenges the right of the Ingonyama Trust Board to force residents living on land controlled by the Trust to sign lease agreements. This will be a landmark case that will establish the rights of 5,2 million South Africans living in former KwaZulu. It will clarify the rights to their homes, their land and security of tenure. The article notes that, quote, the disputed lease agreements compel people to fence their properties and conduct surveys on their lands, both expensive procedures, all at their own cost. They are prohibited from building or altering structures on the land without prior consent, and should they be permitted to build, these improvements are deemed to belong to the trust. In other words, the homes they have built now belong to the Inkunyama Trust. Close quotes. The Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution, the Rural Women's Movement and seven informal land rights holders, represented by the LRC, will seek an order declaring that the Inkunyama Trust has acted unlawfully and in violation of the Constitution by cancelling original permissions to occupy, or PTOs, and concluding residential lease agreements with the holders of PTOs. It will also require the refunding of the rentals that have been paid to date.
such an order would strike a serious blow at the legitimacy of the Ingonyama Trust, which has already been sharply criticised in the reports of both the Motlante High-Level Panel and the Presidential Advisory Panel. Meanwhile, Business Day reports that Justice Minister Ronald Lamola is overseeing the drafting of a bill for the creation of a land court with greater powers to adjudicate on land redistribution and restitution issues. The article notes that the Land Claims Court, set up in 1996 to manage land restitution claims, still lacks permanent judges and consequently is wrestling with an enormous backlog of cases. The Land Court Bill seeks to capacitate the court and extend its mandate to include land reform as a whole. News collected on land rights and mining features Dineo Scosana writing a new frame who focuses on how mining companies and some heritage consultants have failed to understand or willfully ignored the meaning of land and the sacred nature of graves and ancestral remains for African communities. Scosana reports on research carried out in the process of studying for her PhD in which she explored the relocation of 120 families between 2012 and 2016 and the exhumation of almost a thousand graves as a consequence of mining activity. Her, res her research reveals how the relocations left the families feeling spiritually vulnerable and disconnected from their ancestors. Relocating graves for mining activities removes the material obstacles to a company's desire to make profit. For the affected families, though, the relocation erases the evidence of their historical ties to a place and, above all, disrespects their ancestors. Skosana reports that relocated families complained that the treatment of their ancestral remains, such as putting them in plastic garbage bags during the relocations and using childlike coffins for the reburial, caused them and the ancestors severe distress. Finally, in our segment on urban land, Malusi Boy, Mayoral Committee Member for Human Settlements in the city of Cape Town, was interviewed on Cape Talk earlier this week about how a feasibility analysis was being planned to assess the proposed citywide inclusionary housing policy. Ironically, a few days later, Groundup reported that on the 28th of October, the Western Cape government had confronted the city of Cape Town over its service delivery failure in Dunoon. The city of Cape Town was given notice by the Western Cape Environmental Affairs and Development Planning Ministry of its intention to issue a directive in terms of Section 28.4 of the National Environmental Management Act to, quote, immediately repair all the blocked toilets in the area by replacing faulty infrastructure, to provide toilets to accommodate all the inhabitants of the area, and provide an operation plan to deal with the waste management issues around the township, such as the ad hoc illegal dumping sites. However, in response, the city has denied that it was in breach of its responsibilities in terms of NEMA, arguing that, quote, 
Section 28 of NEMA is directed at persons or entities causing pollution. The city has a service delivery obligation, but is not itself the cause of pollution. The city continues to demonstrate commitment to providing services to residents in this increasingly densely populated area. Close quote. Meanwhile, also in Cape Town, Nation Nyoka, writing in New Frame, reports on the plight of the members of the group known as Singabalapa, who took over the vacant Arcadia Place old age home and who were subsequently evicted on the 2nd of October. Members of this group continue to sleep in tents in front of the building. However, according to a City of Cape Town spokesperson, the occupation was a private matter and the city was not obligated by any court order or mandate to provide accommodation. Certainly in the light of the above, there is a very long way to go before a meaningful inclusionary housing policy can be enacted to address the housing backlog in Cape Town and deal with the wide range of problems facing the city. Meanwhile, in the Eastern Cape, the Buffalo City Municipality was reported to be about to evict people who had illegally occupied RDP houses at Fainboss in East London. This follows an earlier unsuccessful attempt to evict the occupants. The Buffalo City Municipality spokesperson Samkelo Nguenya was quoted as saying, This time around, we are with law enforcement agencies and we are also putting in the due beneficiaries onto the houses as soon as we evict those that have been occupying the houses illegally. We know that the issue of housing is a very sensitive issue, however we cannot tolerate the issue of the illegal invasion of homes. The Eastern Cape Development Corporation has launched eviction proceedings against 45 tenants who reportedly owe the corporation some 40 million rand in rent. The ECDC reportedly has a property portfolio of 212 flat units, 99 standalone houses and 175 industrial properties in Butterworth. Our news reports that, quote, some clients are also subletting ECDC properties and collecting rentals while not paying their dues to the corporation. The vast majority of these tenants are economically active and can afford ECDC rentals. So that's all from our overview of land use in week 46. We're not able to cover every land-related article published during the week, so be sure to browse the news categories on www.knowledgebase.land to catch up with other stories making the news. You can also follow us on Twitter at KnowledgeBaseL, where we tweet on land issues every day. You'll be able to listen to a new episode in our podcast series, which should be out on Monday the 25th of November, and will feature news from week 47. <laughs>